If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians. We're in the last chapter. This is our final sermon in a series that we started just over eight months ago, 1 Corinthians 16, and we're going to read um, the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 through 21 this morning. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find this on page 962, and as usual, I'll know that you'll find it very helpful to have your copy of scripture open and reading along there with me. Again, let's go to God and let's ask the Lord to help us as his word is preached and to prepare every heart to receive his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would remember us again this Lord's Day morning. Every Lord's Day we come together, we gather, we do the same things, and we know that this is the way that you advance the church and that your saints go from strength to strength in our pilgrimage that you give us times of soul-strengthening, times of refreshment, times of correction, times of exhortation, even times of rebuke when needed, we pray. Lord, as we close this great letter out this morning, that you would make us attentive, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak. We pray that you would preach peace to us who are afar off and those who are near, that you, Lord Jesus, would act as the prophet of your church. We pray that we would hear your voice and that those who hear would live. We pray that you would help both the one that preaches and those that hear, for we pray these things in your name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1. There Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, that you know that the household of Stephanus was the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, and it should say there Jesus, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. 
Well, as we come to the end of this letter of the Apostle Paul that we started just over eight months ago, it might seem it might seem like a letdown. We've talked about so many things. There's been so many exciting things. People were getting drunk in church. People were sleeping around. Christians were doing all kinds of things, lots of exciting things in this book. And we come to this chapter, and the question may be, well, why, why even preach on this? Why not skip? There's just a list of names and people I can't, even, I can't even pronounce them properly. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot here for a sermon. And I think if that's our attitude, we're going to miss an enormous blessing from Paul. Because what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to give us bookends. Paul's going to give us bookends from the beginning of this letter. At the very beginning of this letter, as Paul sets out to address a church that was laden with problems, laden with sin, laden with troubles, Paul addressed them at the beginning, not by chiding them, not by telling them how messed up they were, but by telling them that they were sanctified in Christ. He reminds them of the position in Christ. He tells them to those in Corinth who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and then Later in chapter 1, he tells them that Christ was crucified for them, that the divisions they had should have been solved by the fact that Christ was crucified and Christ is not divided and they're in Christ. And their identity is their union with Jesus Christ. And that the gospel had so come to them that they had everything in the gospel. And later in chapter 1, Paul will actually say, Of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that everything that we need is in Jesus. And our life is in him. And then later in the letter, Paul will say, you've been bought with a price. You were bought with the infinitely precious blood of Jesus. That's what God has done. God has bought you with the blood of his son. And you belong to him. And you have redemption through his blood. And you are complete in him and built up in him. And Paul has set out at the beginning of this book to tell them what they were in Christ Jesus. And then systematically, Paul has addressed the issues. One by one, Paul has addressed the issues. Paul has manned up on the Corinthians. Paul has been a man. Paul has said, you cannot live like this. You cannot live like this. You you ought not be living like this. If you are sanctified in Christ, you ought not be doing this until finally in the climax of climaxes, Paul says, I even hear that some are denying the resurrection. And that the gospel was even at jeopardy. The gospel by which they had been redeemed out of the world, by which they had been forgiven and built up and had their hopes secured in glory, that gospel was now at jeopardy. And Paul has defended the gospel and has proclaimed the glories of the resurrection. And now, as we come to chapter 16, what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to tie everything in chapter 16 into everything we've read about in the book. It's all organically related. He's going to link it all. And notice back what Paul says back at the beginning of chapter 15. And we saw this the last time we were together. He says in verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace was not toward me in vain, but I labored more than all. I worked harder. I did more. I poured myself out more because of the grace of God in the gospel. And then notice what he says to the Corinthians at the very end of chapter 15. He says, therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that if Jesus is risen, if the gospel is true, if everything I've said is true, be steadfast in the Lord. That's the implication. Work hard for Jesus. Be diligent in laboring for his kingdom. Now what Paul's going to do is give you very practical spheres in which those labors ought to be occurring in chapter 16. It's not just the end of the letter. Paul's not just saying, hey, I'm here with Timothy and I'm here with Stephanus and we really love you guys and wish you well. 
Paul is giving you practical spheres in which the sanctified life in Christ is to be lived out. And Paul's going to do four things. First, he's going to tell them that the sanctified life in Jesus is a life of giving financially to the ministry of the gospel in the church. Then he's going to tell them the sanctified life in Christ is a life of supporting gospel ministers in a multitude of ways in the church. Third, he's going to tell them that the sanctified life in Christ is a life of laboring together for the ministry of the gospel in the church. And finally, if I haven't lost you with long sentences, he's going to tell them that the sanctified life is a life motivated by grace and love. And so notice what Paul does as he transitions. It doesn't seem really fitting, but if you take uh, verse 58 of chapter 15 with verse 1, of chapter 16, you start to understand. He says now in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of the week, each of you is to put up something aside and store it up as he may prosper. For those of you who have been in this church for the last three years, you know I almost never talk about money, almost ever, except in the service where we give reading the scripture. There's a reason there's been great abuses There's been lots of ministers who have been greedy, lots of churches who have been worldly, money-driven, business-driven, ungodly-like examples that have hurt the cause of gospel ministry. And yet, Paul is very clear that gospel ministry is fueled through the giving of the saints. And so he tells them here in this church that had been so divided— Every day of the week, you ought to come together. And when you do, as you have prospered, as God has given financially, you are to lay up. On the Lord's day, as you come together, you're to lay up, you are to store up for the ministry of the gospel in the church. Now, it may not be as evident when we read that, how he's saying that, because what you have to keep in mind is that in the first century, they didn't have church buildings. They met in houses. They didn't own properties. They didn't have, they didn't have trusts set up. They didn't have building committees. There were churches scattered all over the known world, Asia Minor, Asia, Jerusalem, Galatia, all through the world there were churches, and those churches needed support, and those churches needed to support one another. And so notice what Paul's saying to this church in Corinth, this Gentile church. Notice verse 3, he says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. What Paul is doing is he's calling for these people in Corinth to be giving not just for the support of their own church, but for the support of a church that was so needy, a persecuted church, a church that didn't have all the privileges and freedoms and rights that Corinth had. Paul is showing that they belong to something bigger and that part of the financial giving in a local church is to support other local churches. I I love that we are connected to other churches. I loved last Sunday being down at a small but growing church plant in a town in North Florida. I loved it. It thrilled my heart to see how God was raising up this new faithful, gospel-centered, reformed church. And I loved being there because we've been the recipient of other churches ministering to us. And that's a biblical model. The biblical model is not just build your church, just focus on your church. That's not the biblical model. In fact, as you look through this chapter, Paul is everywhere talking about other churches and being a part of these churches and sharing in ministry with these churches. And one of the foremost ways that we share in ministry is through giving. Now, I think think it's safe to say that in, in part, what you do financially reflects what's in your heart. I think that's very safe to say. How you use your money, how you view your money, and what you do financially shows what's in your heart. You know, 
I, I almost think it goes without saying that if, if someone is actually converted, and I think especially in the early years of conversion, they almost don't even need to be told to give. They want to give. They're so grateful for the redemption they have in Christ. They realize everything that they have is from him. They realize that it's all his. They realize that he doesn't need it, but that his church needs it. And the advancement of the gospel is dependent on it, and they love giving. And it's interesting that the further people go on in life and the further they move away from Christ, there's almost a correlation with how they view their money and what they do with it. Let me read a quote to you. I I think this is somewhat helpful. Kent Hughes um, tells a story, says a preacher paid a visit to a farmer and asked, if you had $200, would you give $100 to the Lord? Sure would, said the farmer. If you had two cows, would you give one cow to the Lord? Yep, I would. If you had two pigs, would you give one of them to the Lord? The farmer replied, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. There's no other time for giving but now. It will never be easy. You know what? We laugh, but the reality is a lot of people sitting in pews are just like that man when it comes to what God has given them. And their hearts are not engaged in caring for the needs of the saints. And the sanctified life in Christ is a life that thinks outward about the needs of others and about the spread of the gospel preeminently. It has the highest view of God's church in the world. What Jesus has done through his death is not just forgiving you your sins. Jesus has built his church in the world. It's his bride. And he calls us to participate in caring for, in ministering, and pouring out and giving, financially giving. You know, I think it's a misnomer, if I can say this, to think you can either give time or money. I want to say that as emphatically as I can this morning. I hear people say, well, you can either give time or money. No, you're going to see this morning that God expects the sanctified life of the Christian to be a life of giving time and money to the spread of the gospel in the world. And notice what Paul says. He gives them an imperative. He says there in verse 2, each one of you is to put something up. It's not optional. It's not, well, if you really feel like it or you're moved to or you got out of what little debt you had, you know, people all the time say, well, if I can just get out of this, then I can start giving. You know what? The reality is most of those people never do. Reality is most of the people go on making excuses. Now is the time to give to the work of the Lord. Now's the time to be generous in giving. And you know what? Again, let me say this. God does not need your money. If you're one of those people that think, I'll give to God, and then, you know, listen, that's an insult to God. But God's people need your money. God's church needs your money. God's saints need collections so that they can function as a church in the world for the spread of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so Paul first says this. And notice how Paul sort of crafts this. He wants them to know that it's not about him wanting money. Notice what he says. He says, when I arrive, verse 3, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul didn't want to carry the letter. Paul was committed to preaching. Paul wasn't going to wait tables. He wasn't going to do menial things he wasn't called to do. Paul was an apostle. Paul wasn't going to carry the funds, but Paul's also safeguarding lest they think somehow Paul wants to have that large sum of money and go on that far journey, and who knows what's going to happen with it. Paul says, you pick the men you want to carry the money. You make sure that it makes it to Jerusalem. My heart is for the ministry of the saints. My heart, Paul says, is that the church may be provided for. I think that's beautiful. You see their checks and balances and safeguards, and you see Paul's heart and sincerity coming out, even in telling the church they ought to be giving. Well, notice then Paul shifts gears in verse 5, and he says, 
I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps to stay with you or spend the winter. Now, what Paul is going to say now, Paul is going to give them a detailed itinerary of what he wants to do. Paul's going to say, here's my desire. Here's my plan. Here's what I hope will happen. And here, here's how it has respect to you. Now, Paul doesn't have to tell them a single thing. Paul doesn't have to say, here's my plan. I hope to go to Macedonia. I hope to spend the winter with you. I hope to do this. I hope to do that. Paul's telling them so that they will see their relationship to gospel ministers and that they will receive it and they will embrace that ministry and that they will see that a life in Christ is a life of supporting gospel ministers in the spread of the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. He says, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey. You see, what Paul is almost saying to them is, I want you to share in the ministry that I have. I want you to be a part of my ministry. It's not the gospel minister over here, the preacher over here, and the people over here. He's saying we are a church, and in so much as I am called to go here and there and here and there and preach the gospel, you are called to share in that ministry. Paul is calling them to share in gospel ministry. And notice what he says. He says in verse 7, I do not want to see you now just in passing, but I hope to spend some time with you. There is a, there is a, a heart wedding of the Apostle Paul in the church in Corinth, and there ought to be a heart wedding of local churches and gospel, faithful gospel ministers, that it shouldn't just be a career You know how many, if you go, and I I just encourage you to look up job opportunities in just about any denomination and see what they're looking for. CV, business resume, it's all good, it's all fine. 10 to 15 years experience, had a manager in Starbucks. I don't say that, but that's the gist. The church is not a business. The church is not a business. The church is the church of Jesus, and ministers are wed to the hearts of the people, and the people ought to be wed to the hearts of the minister. And Paul's saying that here. Paul's saying, I want to spend time with you. I want to spend time with all the churches in every place. I want to spend time with all of my spiritual children, Paul's saying. And notice, he says in verse 8, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, very interesting. How do you know... How do you know whether a man is a faithful gospel minister or a fraud? How do you know? It's not always obvious. Notice notice Paul's reasoning for staying in Ephesus. Notice in verse 8 and 9, he says he's going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. And then he says, for a great and effective door is open to me, lots of opportunities for the gospel, and there is much adversity. And what Paul is essentially saying is I'm going to stay there longer because there's more hardships there. Do you see that? Paul's essentially saying, and, and in that he's revealing what's in his heart. He's saying, the reason I'm going to stay longer in Ephesus is because there's going to be a lot of difficulties. Uh, Matthew Henry, a great Puritan commentator, said that whenever a man is successful in proclaiming the gospel and laboring dif- uh, diligently, there will always be great trials. And Paul looks at those trials, and Paul says, those trials are the reason I'm going to stay there. And I think, I think when a man runs from difficulty, it reveals that he's not a faithful gospel minister. When a man starts to get difficulty from members of the congregation and, and, and he turns and takes the easy route out, Jesus says he's a hireling. He doesn't care for the sheep. 
There's always going to be difficulty. There's always going to be challenges. A faithful, biblical preacher of God's word is always going to have challenges. And you'll know that he's faithful when the difficulties come and he stares them in the face. He doesn't like them. He doesn't want them. He may be burdened by them, but he said, I will not faint. I will stay there longer. I will labor more because there's a great door open with many trials. And Paul is saying to the church, this is the kind of ministry that you ought to be supporting and partnering with and coming alongside of and praying for men that are laboring in difficult areas and supporting them, encouraging them, writing them letters of gratitude and telling them how thankful you are and and asking what they need. And Paul is doing all that. Paul's actually coming to them in part for, for support for needs that he has. He needs things for his travels. He needed things. And so Paul is saying the sanctified life in Christ is a, a life that not only gives to the needs of a church, but it also recognizes faithful gospel ministers and comes alongside and partners with them in gospel ministry. Thirdly, thirdly, Paul will say something a little bit, I think, about ministry of the members of the church, different members, not just not just gospel ministers. Notice what he says in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now he's speaking to members of the church. He's saying, you be watchful. You stand firm in the faith. You act like men. There's going to be difficulties. Don't buckle under the difficulties. Don't run from the difficulties. Face the difficulties. Know that in Christ Jesus, you have conquered, that you are exalted with Christ, seated in the heavenly places with him, and that We don't faint in the day of adversity. A Christian ought to be the boldest. I've often thought about the proverb, the righteous are bold as a lion, but the wicked flees when no one pursues. The wicked, "Ah, I don't like this. I'm going to go over here. I don't want to get in any trouble over here. The righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous face adversity. They're strong. They act like men. Paul's basically saying, and ladies, this is no insult to you, be a man. Be a man for Jesus. Labor diligently for Jesus. Don't take the easy route of escapism. And don't, don't back out of things when things get difficult. Ministry gets difficult. The Christian life is difficult. And so Paul says to them, and notice this, he now starts to tell them that they have a role to play as believers and members of the church. Notice this in verse 15. He says, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Now, I want to point something out in this chapter. You can see that there are three layers of ministry spheres going on. You have churches ministering to churches. So you have the church in Corinth taking gifts To the church in Jerusalem, you have churches, local churches caring for each other. And then you have ministers caring for those churches. And then you have families in the churches caring for others in the church. And then you have individuals in the church caring for individuals in the church. And so at every level, every group in the church is ministering for the well-being of the church. And for the establishment of the gospel and the building up of the people of the church. And notice what Paul says. And I love this. He says, he mentions the household of Stephanus, who were the first converts in Achaia. They have diverted themselves to the service of the saints. I wish it was more written on families in the church, laboring together for the church, and being on mission with Jesus in their communities, that instead of 
isolating to have a godly family instead of saying a godly family is one that isolates an insular approach. It's one that integrates and the children in the homes are taught to minister. Notice what Paul says. Stephanus, this man, this head of his home in Achaia, an an adult convert, had no Christian upbringing. He didn't have godly parents. He wasn't third generation Christian. He didn't have 25 years in the PCA. He didn't have any of that. And Paul singles out this family and he says, this man and his household ministered to the saints. This man took his family out and had them engaged in ministry. I thought about this yesterday with the parade and and the children growing up and seeing the name of Jesus proclaimed publicly. Travis said to Micah, you gave out cards yesterday. Aren't you glad somebody could come to know Jesus if they heard the gospel at New Covenant? That's what should happen. That's what should happen. That's what Paul's commending. Paul's saying families should be living together in mission for Jesus and they should be ministering together in the church and individuals. Notice he mentions several in verse 17. He says, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, they've refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Essentially, what we have in this chapter is the most exalted view of life of a believer in a local church. That you, don't, you almost see no separation of their life and their calling to be a member of Jesus' church. I love the hymn, and listen carefully to this. I love, it's one of my favorite hymns. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God, her walls before thee stand. Dear as the apple of thine eye and written on thy hand, for her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, to her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. I wonder if that's the cry of our hearts. I love your kingdom, Lord. I love your church. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend, for her my toils and cares shall be given till toils and cares shall end. You know, I often think about problems in the church and you see all the problems in Corinth and you almost sense Paul saying, you know, you wouldn't have all the issues that you have in a church if people had this mentality of being devoted to the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ, being actively involved in every sphere and every way in the well-being of the church. Um, It's hard to be bitter at somebody when you're praying for them. It's actually impossible to be bitter for somebody when you're praying for them. When you're really interceding for somebody, no matter how much harm they've done for you in the church, it's impossible. It's, it's impossible to be bitter towards somebody that you don't like in the church if you're on your knees before Jesus for them. That's what Paul's calling us to see, that the sanctified life in Christ, it's not just about saying, oh, great, I'm redeemed, I'm sanctified. It's about laboring. It's exactly what Paul said. Look what he said at the end again of chapter 15. He said, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And in the church your labor is not in vain. And in giving your labor is not in vain. And in supporting gospel ministers your labor is not in vain. And in bringing your family in to minister, it's not in vain. And being actively involved in spreading the knowledge of Jesus Christ in this world is not in vain. Now, let me say this, finally. The sanctified life is a life motivated by love and grace. You could take all these things, 
And we all fail miserably. Adam, I'm number one. We all fail miserably. And you could take all these things and you could go home and flog yourself to do more, to try harder. And what that's going to do is one of two things. Either you will become proud and judgmental of others that don't, or you will live in condemnation when you fail again. And notice what Paul says. I love this. I love this. He says in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul doesn't want people to try in their own strength to do these things. He wants them to see that in Christ they've been given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That God has opened the floodgates of grace for his people. And that that grace motivates. You know, what was the, sec- what was the secret to Paul? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The Christian life from beginning to end is grace. It's not grace to go on doing whatever you want to do. Living for self. It's grace that teaches us to deny ourselves and live for Christ. And notice, it's not just grace, but it's grace that produces love. Notice the the sense of affection and love that the churches have for one another. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't think Paul's saying, let's get up and have a time of introducing and kissing each other. I think Paul's saying there ought to be affection and love and warmth that you ought to want to spend time. Do you dart out of here after the service? Let me ask you that. I don't like confronting. You don't know this about me. You may think I do. I don't like confronting. But if you try to avoid fellowship with believers, that's a very unhealthy sign. If you try to avoid being actively involved in the life of the church more than just Sunday morning, it's an unhealthy sign. It's a sign of spiritual regression. It's not a good thing. Can I say that with as little frustration and as much care and love for you? There ought to be love and affection. There were churches in Asia who had never even met some of these Christians in Corinth, and they sent their greetings and their love, and there was a warmth and there was a desire to be in fellowship together. And notice what Paul does. Paul says, all the brothers send you greetings. In verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Paul's saying, I took the time to write out this lengthy letter. I gave of myself. I sacrificed. If you assess your life, if you look at your life, all the things we've heard about 1 Corinthians over the year, over the year say, where am I at? That would be a good thing for us to do at the end of this letter, to stop and say, How am I living the sanctified life in Christ? Am I loving? Am I being motivated by grace? Am I giving of my time and my money and my prayers and my tears? Am I longing to be together with God's people? Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter what books you've read. It doesn't matter what churches you've been a part of. It doesn't matter who you think you are. If your life is not motivated by love and grace, there's something seriously wrong with your heart before the Lord Jesus. And you know what? I subject myself to this. We need to subject ourselves and say, where am I? Where am I on this? How am I doing spiritually? Am I living like what I am? You know, Paul's not telling them to become something. He's telling them to be what they are. You're in Christ. You're saints. You're sanctified. You've been redeemed. God's grace has been large to us. And then notice what he says in verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be cursed. 
I think what Paul's saying is that all the service, all the activity, all of that, if it's void of love for Jesus, doesn't mean anything, and actually you're still under the curse of God. And so at the end of the day, all of what's been said in this letter and in this chapter is to serve the gospel. What Paul is most interested in is you knowing Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the, most, that's the thing he is most interested in, is you knowing Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you love him? Does your heart burn with love for Jesus? Do you pray for more love? More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. This is the prayer I make on bended knee. Is that the cry of your heart? Oh God, give me more love for Jesus. May all of my communications, all of my actions, all of these things be for the name of the Lord Jesus. That ought to be the cry and the prayer of every sanctified heart. We fail miserably. We do fail miserably. But we get up and we pray and we cry out and we get more grace and he gives more grace and he gives more love and we grow and we go forward together. And you know what? I think this is a good place for us to stop. I think it's good for us, having heard so much over the last eight months, to really sit back and say, am I living a sanctified life in the church of Jesus Christ out of love for Christ and because of his grace in the gospel? It's the big million-dollar question for you to go home with today. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Oh God, there are many weighty things in your word and many things we would miss if we were not attuned to the nuances and details of scripture and your own heart as revealed in the Bible. And we thank you, our God, that you challenge us. We thank you that you give us godly examples. We thank you that you convict us of sin. We thank you that there is grace and pardon in Christ and that there's power and there's renewal in him. We pray for this church. We pray for New Covenant. We ask, Father, that you would make us a church full of love and grace, a church in which every family and individual and minister labors zealously for the name of Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us love for the Lord Jesus above all things, that you would give us the grace to foster that love and to pray for that love and to pursue it. We thank you that you have loved us. Not that we have loved you first, but that you have loved us and given yourself for us. Lord Jesus, help us. Make us into the church that you want us to be. Remind us who we are in you. We pray in your name. Amen.